well, good morning, everyone. Um, I want to add my um, happy Father's Day to all the ones that have come before. Um, but before I get going more, uh, let me pray for us as we hear and respond to God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you for the morning that we've had so far. Thank you that we've heard of your son, Jesus, and what he has accomplished on the cross. In so many ways, as we've sung and heard your word read and explained, I pray that as we um, all listen to your word again now, that you would help us as we keep getting to know you more. Help me to be clear uh, in the way I explain it. And I pray all this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Um, as has already been pointed out, uh, it's hard to escape on a Father's Day like this, um, thinking about love, and particularly the love for our dads, love that we've received or love that we've given. And depending on our experiences, um, this can really shape how a day like today feels. As commercial as it might be, getting to Father's Day or Mother's Day in a calendar um, makes us remember a lot of things. Uh, these can be really wonderful and pleasant memories. They can be really important moments with our dads that shaped who we are now. I, my dad shaped me into being a computer nerd because he spent lots of time with me when I was even a toddler uh, explaining how computers worked. Uh, it's a really treasured memory for me. Uh, we can remember words of encouragement or warning, the way that our dads have protected us, or opportunities or the time that they gave of themselves for us that we can be thankful for. We remember times when we've tried to demonstrate our love, maybe really badly, on previous Father's Days of dodgy breakfasts and dodgy socks and outings that were actually more work for him than it was joyful. And we try to think of better ways that we can show our love uh, again on days like this. But for some of us, uh, today's actually a really painful day. And I just wanted to acknowledge that and talk about that because that actually shapes a lot of the way that we uh, treat others and how we can even think about God as our Heavenly Father. Days like this for some of us can be memories of absent love or lost love, memories of discouragement or confusion, memories of their failings to love or our failing to love. And it can feel closer to heartbreak or obligation than feeling love. This might be the sort of day that you'd prefer never to have to think through or experience or remember. Whether it's a day of great joy for you or a day of hurt or some sort of mix of the two, these experiences can shape the way that we think about the people around us and God as our Heavenly Father. And I think it's really helpful that today's passage is lifting our gaze to him and inviting us to consider some big questions that we often ask about what his love is like and what it means to be one of his children. Many of us have found ourselves questioning God's love in some way before. We've never seen God and so we ask, how is it that we can know that he loves us? We're fearful that he would judge and reject us. How can we go away from this? 
if we've failed again and again at loving people close to us, then what confidence can we have that we might love in a way that God hopes for us to love? Um, oh, got my mask. Thank you, Michelle. <laughs> um, all these sorts of questions are questions that the passage that you've heard read uh, and that I'll be helping explain, I think tackles in some way. And it does it in three different sections, and I'm going to go through them bit by bit. Um, the first part of today's passage reintroduces this theme that we've seen again and again through 1 John, and it's this command to love fellow Christians. It's really hard to read 1 John and come away forgetting that John's telling us to do this. And so right from this first verse, in verse 7, we're told that as beloved Christians, we're called to love one another, for God is, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And it turns out that this is crucial, just like we've seen before again and again, to what it looks like to living as a Christian. Verse 8 says that anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. This verse and verse 16 coming later are hugely famous verses of the Bible. You hear them at all sorts of things, at weddings, on billboards, on uh, plaques on your house or something like that. But I actually more commonly hear it as just three words, that God is love. And if I'm honest, most of the time I hear it, it's actually in some way speaking against Christian teaching. Whether it's by people that confess to be Christians or people that are not, they're making claims based on these three words that are in disagreement with what they think God is saying or doing. They're making claims like saying that God is love, so he couldn't possibly ask anyone to do something that the world thinks is unloving. How could God ask people to tell others that they have sinned before God and that they're facing his judgment? Surely that's unloving. Or, God is love, and surely he, that overpowers his anger and wrath against sinners. Surely it's going to be a happy ending for everyone, because love wins. Surely that's what it means, that God is love. Or, because God is love, then surely he is behind every kind of love that we see the world expressing or defining now that somehow there's a part of him that's in all of those things. I think the passage that we're going through today makes it really clear that none of those sorts of statements can hold. It's saying a lot of clear things about what God's love is and who he is and how he shows it, and so it makes it clear that these things just don't hold up. I think the first way that he says this is that um, I think he's saying that God, as love, doesn't mean that God is defined by what the world says love is. We've seen this already in 1 John. Right in the start, in chapter 1, we saw God described as light, that God is light. That doesn't mean that to understand God, we've got to go to some sort of lighting store and see lots of different colored lights and intensities and prices and styles. Uh, that's not how we get to know God, by seeing all these popular types of lights. Instead, he's describing about himself. 
about what permeates his character and his actions and how he reveals himself. And it's a bit similar here with love. When God says that he is light, he makes it clear that he's completely righteous and there's not even a hint of evil in him, in what he is or what he does. And not only can we truly know him um, because, because of this, um, but he's taken us from darkness into light in this way. Um, that actually one day we will be standing with him in the light with not even a hint of sin left in us on the last day. It's the same with this idea that God is love. God isn't just some sort of emotion. He's not some sort of blueprint of what it looks like to love. And he's not somehow involved in every expression of love in the world. Instead, God is describing what permeates his character and his actions and how he reveals himself. He defines love for us. He shows us love through everything that he does. And love so clearly resounds from God that if we are not found loving, then it demonstrates us not knowing God. And so if God is love, how would a passage like this demonstrate what his love is like? I think this is one of the clearest parts of the Bible in showing us this, because it highlights the clearest way that God has demonstrated this love through the work of his son. There's lots of ways God's demonstrated his love all throughout the Bible, and that makes sense, because he is unfailing and steadfast in his love. Right in Genesis, we see instances of him saving Joseph, who had been sold into slavery by his brothers, and he restores him. We see his love in delivering his people from the Egyptians in Exodus and bringing them to the promised land despite their rebellion and rejection of him. He shows his unfailing love to David in helping him through turmoil and promising an unending kingdom that's going to come from his family line. And he showed it in preserving and restoring his people even as they were in exile for disobeying him and being unfaithful. But God shows his love in the clearest and most ultimate way in his son, Jesus. And he shows it through his death. He shows him that this love to us in the, him being sent in his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, and shows us so much about what God's love is like, rather than these ideas of love that we get from the world around us. There's a few different ways that I think we see it that God's love is one that he initiates. It's not that we love God, he loved us. He shows it to us as unlovely people, as people that have sinned and rejected him. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loves in a way that's self-giving and at great cost, the cost of his only son dying in our place to turn away God's wrath that we deserve. God's son doesn't just suffer a shameful death in the worst kind of way on a cross, but he takes the full force of God's anger that we deserve. He takes this for the sin of the world, and that includes our sin. I think the way that he demonstrates love, that he shows that he is love, smashes so many of the wrong ideas that the world has about love. Some people say that love should just be easy. It should be 
natural. Yet Jesus lived in constant rejection from the people that were meant to accept him as the promised king. Some say that love should feel really good. Yet out of love, Jesus took God's full wrath in our place for our sin. Some say that loving yourself is what's important and that's how we love others. Yet God the Father loved us at great personal cost at the death of his son. We most clearly see God's love in him sending Jesus and his love just looks so much different to the rest of the world. And so I think in verse 11, we get the natural conclusion. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If this is what God is like and what he's done, it's obvious that knowing him and being born of him means loving his fellow children, our Christian brothers and sisters. And when this happens, John says that God's love is abiding in us and his love is perfected in us. I'll get to the abiding bits in the middle part. Um, But the perfecting, I think, is not trying to slight what God's love is like. It's not saying that God's love isn't perfect until we go along and do something. It's not saying his love isn't good enough except for us. It's actually talking about his love being made complete in reaching its intention. His love is brought to its intended result and it's us responding to God's love as he's shown it to us. Not in apathy or hate, not in rejecting him, not in ignoring him, but in loving him and loving others. In this we see that God's love is made perfected in us. I think this helps us understand what's come just beforehand in verse 12 that no one has ever seen God. Why the heck's that there in there? But I think that's saying that when God's love is perfected in us, everyone sees the effects of God's love in the way that Christians love one another. His love continues to be made visible and people actually get a glimpse of what God is like through the way that he has changed his children. They see his love when Christians love one another in the same kind of love that he has loved. And it's a really beautiful sight. This is what it looks like to know God, is to know his love and to be actually responding in that same sort of love yourselves. I think it's got some pretty clear implications for us. Obviously, we've been commanded to love our fellow Christians and to love in not a way that the world tells us, but in a way that God shows us, in a way that takes initiative, in a way that's not based on merit or who someone is or how lovable they are, and a love that gives of ourselves sacrificially for the benefit of other. How are you going at this at the moment at church with Christian family and friends, with everyone that you know that knows Jesus? I think for myself, I often catch myself saying that I'm prepared to love people or saying that I would care for someone if they needed help or listen to them if they needed me to, but I don't find myself actually taking proactive steps to show love even when it's not asked for just because I know it's needed. You might be similar to me. You might be different. 
how is your love for Christian brothers and sisters mirroring the kind of love that he showed us in the death of his son? What of God's love do people that see you see? What might you need to change in the way that you're living in obedience to Jesus in this command that he gives to love brothers and sisters? I think this part of the passage also gives us the really clear answer to that first question from before of how do we know God loves us? This answer isn't based on some sort of experience or some sort of feeling, something that could go, something you do feel today but not tomorrow. It's found in the sure knowledge of what God has already done out of his steadfast love. How do you know that God loves you? It's because of the simple answer that he sent his son to save you at such great cost that you might know him and be found to have forgiveness in him. How do we know that God loves us? It's seen so clearly in him sending his son to die in the way that he did that we might have life. The next paragraph enters us into this different kind of question and we had it hinted at just a little bit before, of who it is that abides in God. Who is it that abides in God and God in them? And I think there's a few different answers that we get in verses 13 and 15 and 16. And all these answers seem to actually be to give Christians confidence about judgment that's coming. I think the first one is actually probably the least clear of the three. Um, in verse 13, one of the ways that we know that, he is, that uh, we abide in him is that he has given us of his spirit. And I think that you do take this in a really straightforward way. We know that we abide in him because his spirit is in us. But it's not really a super satisfying answer. It feels like it's pushing back to another question. Um, it's not, not something that's super clear and obvious, just the answer that we have God's spirit. I think, then, that it's talking about the fact that if God's spirit is in us, then there is some sort of thing going on, that he's at work in us, and that's really obvious. It's not talking about some sort of ecstatic sign that when God's spirit is on us, that some sort of big event happens or anything like that. I think it's simply talking about the way that our actions change because of the way that God's work in us is happening because he dwells in us. This can look like, just like last week, when we're speaking the truth about Jesus, that's his spirit at work in us. Or when we love like he loves, as was really clear before. Or when we're growing in obedience and living out his commands for us. It can be all manner of things, and when we start living like how you would expect God's children to live, it's really clear that his spirit is at work in us, and so his spirit is in us, and he abides in us, and, and us in him. The next two verses, in 14 and 15, I think give the next answer, and that's another one that's a bit clearer, that whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in God. Verse 14 shows us a bit more about what's involved in that kind of profession. 
John is one of Jesus' apostles, and his role is testifying about what the Father has done in sending his son Jesus for the salvation of the world, to be the saviour of the world. And so when John says um, that we are to know and confess that Jesus is the Son of God, I think it's talking about everything that's caught up in that kind of testimony, everything that it means to trust in Jesus, that he came and lived and died and rose again, that we might have forgiveness. I think it's the right response to hearing the gospel. And so, to put it simply, I, I think it's talking about believing in the gospel message. The right belief in this way is evidence that God is abiding in us and us in him. And we see it in verse 16 of how this has happened and should give confidence to everyone around God's church all across the world. They've all heard this testimony about Jesus and they've believed in it. They've come to believe that Jesus lived and died and rose again and that by dying he took the penalty for their sin and that they can have forgiveness and everlasting life with God. They've heard this and believed, and so they should have confidence that God abides in them and them with God. And then the final answer is in the, just what follows in the rest of that verse. It's the next God is love verse, and it says that God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Uh, I think in some ways this is probably the simplest one. Are you abiding in love in the same way that we've heard before? In the way that God's revealed it, not the way that the world demonstrates it, in the way that God revealed it in Jesus? Are you remaining in his love and living out his love in the way that he's shown? Then I think it should be showing you that you can be confident that you abide in him and him in you. It's these three things together that seem to be giving John's readers and us confidence that we need not fear when God's day of judgment comes. Knowing we abide with God gives us this confidence and it's because um, out of God's perfected love in us, out of these changed lives that are evidence of the true belief in Jesus, that we already have forgiveness in him. There's none of our sins when Jesus comes again to judge that we need fear that God will face uh, us in with his wrath. All of us have warehouses of records of sin before God. And so without this kind of faith, without this status, we should be fearing God in his judgment. All of us have rejected him and what we think and what, how we act. We've rejected him in how we worship him and how we honour him by not worshipping him as we should and not honouring him as we should. We've all rejected him by living for our own cravings instead of living for what honours and pleases him according to his goodwill and according to his good truth. Without rescue and salvation from Jesus, all of us have good reason to fear God's judgment 
And without his help, there's nothing that we can do to atone for that sin and rejection of him. But trusting in Jesus and the good news of him means that we no longer fear. We don't fear his judgment to come. Being God's children means that we're already forgiven. We don't have to worry about that status. The wrath we deserved has been poured out on him in his sacrificial death in our place. And so when God judges, he's already carried out his judgment on him. It's amazing news. It's news that we ought to be telling everyone about. It's news of being freed from judgment if we have faith in Jesus. That's what our lives should look like as we go and live and talk amongst people in sharing this news. But I think there's two quick things I have to say about fear, just to clarify some things. This isn't saying that Christians don't fear God in the general sense that's actually really clear throughout the whole Bible. It would be really weird to suddenly say that Christians don't fear God because that's something that's commended and commanded. It's absolutely right for Christians to still be continually humbled and in awe and shaken by God's absolute power, his holiness, his goodness, his love, all of these amazing attributes about him. John is instead saying that Christians are simply no longer fearing his wrath when he will come to judge. God's wrath against them has already been dealt with. Fearing God is part of truly knowing him. So it's not about not fearing God. But Christians, in what they've been brought into and abiding with him, needn't fear facing his wrath anymore. But second, if you are a Christian and you do actually fear God's judgment, what's going on? I think that can come up in questions of doubts, like, would God really actually love someone like me? Or if God knows what I'm like inside and I'm pretty convinced he does if he's what you say, how would he ever accept me? If this is you, then you need to keep with the rest of us returning again and again and again to the gospel and the good news of Jesus to see how in this news all of these questions are yes in Jesus. He offers complete forgiveness no matter who you are. He shows unfailing love. It doesn't just change day to day. He gives us confidence that our sins are forgiven if we trust in him. Trusting in Jesus means assurance of all these things. And we need to keep hearing this again and again and again. Because as we've just seen, perfected love has, um, fear has no place in this kind of love we've been brought into. We need to know that in Jesus we're completely forgiven. There's nothing that can change that. And I think verse 19 gives us even more confidence of this. It turns out, and it might be surprising, that the scope of the time in which God loved us first is bigger and bigger than what you actually thought through. Josh was reading from Ephesians 1 just before, but I think we see through that that God, before even the world was made, had chosen us. In love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, 
with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God's love isn't just some sort of spontaneous or casual thing that came out of nowhere. It's not something that was unprecedented, like Jesus suddenly came and everyone was confused. Um, It's a love that's been demonstrated and a love for us that was before even the creation of the world. This work of Jesus is demonstrating the culmination of this loving plan that God's made to restore us to himself despite our sin. Knowing this love and seeing the way that it shapes us and the way we respond to him, it ought to give us full confidence on that day of judgment because we know that in through faith in Jesus we are forgiven. On to the next couple of verses. I think it's again returning to this idea about how loving God and loving his children is just inseparable. And it shows through two different ways how it just doesn't make sense to be separating the ideas of the two. The first is this idea that the inability to love other Christians shows a greater inability to love God as we should. John's arguing that if we can't love our brothers and sisters who are here and we can touch and see, how can we possibly love God who's not someone we see, or at least we don't see yet? You just can't separate those two. It's much harder to love what you don't see, and so if someone's claiming to love God but doesn't love others in his family that are there with them, how can that make sense? They're only fooling themselves and they're lying about their love for God. I think that this is again giving us reassurance and confidence. And it's again just reminding us of how important it is that this love that we've known, this love that we've been caught up in in Jesus is one that permeates us and is displayed to people all around us. So how do you know that God is with you? How do you know that he abides in you and that you're abiding in him? We've seen all of these big markers that should give us confidence. We've seen it's his spirits working in us and in us. That it's the true but simple confession of faith in Jesus. And it's in us starting to love God and his children in the same kind of way that he loves, in a way that's changed and different. These are three different things that give us assurance that so many other things that we try to do don't. We try to think that we have made it and we're accepted because we've been going to church our whole life. We've been serving in different roles at church. We've been helping out others. We've been on rosters, even the bad rosters. But that is not what gives us confidence before God. It might mean that you've been baptised as a child or even as an adult and you think that it's that physical action that gives you confidence before God that he will accept you when he returns to judge. That's not it. You might have spoken words from a pamphlet, a sinner's prayer, something like that, but without heart or meaning. These can all be good things and expressions of what it looks like to be a Christian, But outside of trusting in Jesus, none of these things do anything. It'd be a terrible thing to think that you are confident of God's acceptance 
and yet find him giving you a surprise when you face his holy wrath on that last day of judgment. It's only in faith in Jesus that we don't fear this judgment. And so trust in him and be encouraged and assured by these things that come out of trusting in him that we can see all around us and in ourselves as we walk with Jesus. These last five verses, I'll speed through a little bit faster because there's a lot of um, recap of what we've had with a couple of little nuances. Um, The first verse is reinforcing this idea um, of both who we are and what we do. So that we are God's children when we believe in Jesus as the Christ, his promised king, just like I mentioned before, the one that he'd promised to be the forever king for David. We're trusting in the good news of Jesus and proclaiming him as Lord and King. That's one of the signs that we know. And therefore, as people born of God, again, it's impossible that you could live loving God as his children and yet not loving fellow children a bit of the same idea but again i think we need to keep hearing it again and again verses two and three then start to show us a bit more about actually how following him and his call for obedience looks i think we are often really resistant to the idea of duty or obedience in our lives as christians Uh, we can associate it with some wrong ideas that we hear all around us that Christianity is all about following rules, that it's about some sort of obligation that doesn't come out of what we truly believe. We're just scared, and so we're doing what we're told. Some of us have, might have even said to others that Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship with Jesus. And there's lots of really true things about that. I'm not saying that's necessarily bad. But when we're tempted to distance ourselves from our duty and obedience to Jesus, our obedience to God and what it looks like to love him, then we're actually finding ourselves distant from what it looks like to love God. Loving God looks like living in obedience to him. You can't separate the two. It's a package deal in these verses. His commands are a good thing And with his help, we grow in obedience as we look towards our Lord Jesus, who is obedient even to death on a cross. I think this is what John's getting at in verse 3 when he's saying that God's commands are not burdensome. It's about the help that he gives us, even when loving like this is foreign to us, it's not in our nature, that knowing God and him abiding in us helps us as we love and respond to him in obedience. As his children, growing in love is inseparable from growing in obedience too. And of course that means loving other believers as well. I think it's worth clarifying too that it's really clear that John isn't saying that the Christian life is struggle-free or carefree or not difficult. Following after Jesus looks like following him into the same sorts of rejection and suffering and hate and persecution that he experienced. 
It might look different depending on where people live and the current stage of history. But all Christians are told to expect hate and persecution for what they do in living in the name of Jesus. You'll know many times yourself that that's not the end of the difficulty. If you've been a Christian even for a little while, you know the struggle it is of when we want to say no to sin and yes to Jesus, but there are so many ways that we want to give in to our pleasures, our selfish desires, and what we'd prefer to do. I know I'm like this myself in countless ways that I've experienced this. Or even as we grow in obedience, we suddenly realise that our sin is deeper and bigger than we'd never imagined. But rather than shrinking away when we realise this, rather than giving up, we're told to keep loving him, to keep coming to him in repentance, knowing that we've already been forgiven. We keep relying on his help in changing us. Without his help, we could do nothing. But because he lives in us, our lives look radically different. It looks us like us relying on him and making every effort, even when it's hard, to keep growing and practicing obedience in loving him and loving other Christians. And finally, we have in verses 4 and 5, and I'm kind of glad Ken read the sneaky fifth verse, because I'm going to talk about it. Um, it talks about how people overcome the world and who that is. This is a really quick part, and I think it shouldn't take us by surprise if we've heard and understood any of this section. The people that overcome the world and its false ideas and values and desires that are coming out of complete rejection and opposition to God, it makes sense that the ones that do that are God's children. They're the ones that are born of God. They're the ones that through faith have victory over this lasting pull and allure and attractiveness of the world's ideas that are separate from God's. And tragically, no one else. In verse 5, we've seen that it's only those in, with faith that overcome. And this is consistent with all of the language so far in 1 John, where he says so often that you're in or you're out. You're God's child or you're not. You love God or you hate him. You either continue to be sucked into the world's ideas of what it looks like to live in rejection to him, but worship of self, or you find rescue through faith in Jesus. How will you be found when God returns to judge? Will you be found as one of his faithful children, clinging to and relying on his forgiveness? Or will you be found still trying to live for self in opposition for God and waiting and then finally seeing him overthrowing any thought that that could ever work? I hope you've seen all through this that there's some encouraging things to hear and take in if we're the ones that take them in. I hope if you've ever asked how we can know that God loves us, that you've seen and heard his love clearly in the work of Jesus. 
unlike the selfish and fickle world that loves one day and not the next, that disappoints, that leaves, God's love is sacrificial and unfailing and real and unchanging. Will you believe this? I hope you've heard that if you fear God's judgment, if you've ever feared it, that you can have confidence when he judges if you have faith in Jesus' work. Faith in Jesus is the only way to have this confidence. So will you trust in him? And I hope if you've ever questioned how you could possibly love as the way that God expects, that you've seen that we can only know and live like this by being recipients of this ourselves through the work of Jesus. Loving God does look like obedience to him. It does look like loving fellow brothers and sisters as we love God. But, and that's really hard. But it's impossible without his help. Will you commit to remaining in and living out this love for your whole life? We need God's help in all of these things. So I'm going to ask him to help us, for all of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that in your Son, Jesus, we can approach you as a holy and righteous and blameless and all of the good God in confidence. We thank you that in the forgiveness that you offer us in him, we're now made your children if we have faith. Thank you that this means that we don't fear your judgment. Thank you that this means that we're shown what love is and that we are even enabled to show it to others. Help us as we live to live as your children, loving you and loving each other. Help us to love the world, uh, the people in the world enough to tell them and warn them of this thing.